You know, when I was your age, go ask your mother. I know you don't like it. It builds character. How many times do I have to tell you? I'm not just talking to hear my own voice. Hello, listener, and welcome to Datages. I'm your host, Chad Hagel. And if you are looking for some fatherly wisdom for your career, your family, or any other aspect of your life, then you've come to the right place. If you want to learn more about Datages, find additional content, submit questions or feedback to me, or if you want to know if that mental picture you have of me after hearing my voice matches my real face, visit datages.com. Thanks for being here. And before you listen to our podcast, please listen to your father. Listeners, welcome back to Datages episode 10 in our continuing series on philanthropy. As always, I'm your host, Chad Hagel. In our most recent episode, we covered the topic of charity versus philanthropy. I provided some stories of my early engagement in the nonprofit world and explained how I came up with the datage, I don't believe in charity, I believe in philanthropic investment. Today's datage advances the discussion further. Here it is. The greatest investment you can make in yourself is investing in the lives of others. This statement is paradoxical, but perhaps it's also so obvious that it just stands on its own merit and doesn't even require explanation. But that wouldn't make for a very good podcast episode, would it? I'd like to take the time to explore this axiom further and share some more of my experiences in philanthropy. Our final episode in this series on philanthropy will then focus on the next chapter for me and my evolving vision for philanthropy in my own life and explore how one person can really make a difference. I hope that through today's episode and the next, I can provide some helpful insights if you're considering making philanthropy part of your own life or that I can inspire you to consider philanthropy as an enhancement to your life if you aren't taking advantage of the opportunity to do so already. Let's begin our exploration of the paradox of selfish selflessness with consideration of the psychological, physiological, and spiritual impacts of philanthropy. Believe it or not, there's plenty of science to demonstrate that we can have a positive impact on our own mental and physical health through generosity to others. There's a psychological phenomenon associated with giving and volunteerism known as the helper's high. This is a concept that started to receive serious investigation and study in the 1980s, which I find interesting because I don't think many of us consider the 1980s to be a particularly charitable period in history. Just ask Gordon Gecko from Wall Street, which was released in 1987. Greed is good. Well, evidently science responds, greed may be good, Mr. Gecko, but generosity is even better. And Gordon? You better listen up, because science knows what it's talking about, and it brought evidence. Research published by the National Academy of Sciences in 2006 indicates that charitable giving activates the frontomesolimbic networks in the brain. Meso-what? Basically, the act of giving stimulates the same parts of the brain that are activated by stimuli such as sex, food, drugs, and money. This releases some of our juiciest feel-good neurotransmitters, such as oxytocin and vasopressin. So this helper's high, it's right up there with some of life's greatest pleasures. 
Other studies have shown that giving, not just figuratively, but literally, produces a warm glow, causing the body temperature to rise in response to the act of giving. And a study conducted during the pandemic demonstrated the effectiveness of using pro-social behavior, like charitable giving, as a tool to strategically combat loneliness, anxiety, and depression. So if you visit your psychiatrist for depression, instead of saying, take two and call me in the morning, he may advise you to give two instead. Multiple studies have shown that focusing on the needs of others eases depression in the short term and can have long-lasting effects to protect us against depression. The benefits of giving are not just psychological. There are direct physiological health benefits as well. Research conducted by the Buck Center for Research in Aging in Novato, California, demonstrated that elderly people who volunteer are 44% less likely to die over a five-year period. And while there are ways to challenge statistics of this nature from such a study, 44% is a noteworthy margin. And there's been plenty of diligent scrutiny provided in this study to adjust for baseline conditions, such as the idea that people who volunteer are naturally happier and healthier individuals to start with. Bottom line, if you want to live a happier, healthier, longer life, philanthropy is a great place to start. Caring for others is a great form of self-care. If you want to study this phenomenon further, we'll provide you with some great resources in the bulletin board on datages.com. And if you aren't someone who is motivated by scientific research, then listen to one of the greatest comedians and greatest philanthropists in modern human history, Bob Hope, who said, if you haven't got any charity in your heart, you have the worst kind of heart trouble. So we've talked about the mind and the body. And now I ask, listener, how's your karma? We've all heard about karma. This concept has become prominent in pop culture. I I even saw a bumper sticker once that read, your karma ran over my dogma. But what does karma really mean? There's a modern recharacterization of karma as a universal balancing force that doles out negative outcomes in response to people who do bad things and positive outcomes to people who do good things. This fatalistic rebranding of the concept of karma, karma with a consciousness, is not consistent with how karma was originally conceived. The term karma is derived from the Sanskrit word karman, meaning simply act. Philosophical contemplation of karma dates back as far as 1000 BC as part of the Vedic religion, which was a precursor to Hinduism. The theologian Yajnavalkya, expressed karma in this way. A man turns into something good by good action and into something bad by bad action. Rather than some form of external deified balancing force, karma is really an internal phenomenon built on the notion that we are the product of our actions. The good and bad things that we do have an unavoidable impact on our development as human beings. Karma is the tangible result of our own deeds, intentions, and emotions. In Buddhism, Taoism, Hinduism, and other religions that hold reincarnation as central to their beliefs, karma serves as the scorecard of the soul that ultimately decides the nature of one's reincarnation. Whether or not your religion or your philosophical belief system includes reincarnation, 
There is one fundamental principle that is broadly recognized as being common among all religions in the world. It's captured in what we often refer to as the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Artist Norman Rockwell produced a mural simply entitled The Golden Rule that is a beautiful representation of the universality of this notion across the entire world. We've provided a picture of this piece in the bulletin board at Datages. Go check it out. We've also posted a document that shows passages from the definitive texts of the world's major religions reflecting the universality of the golden rule. We seem to be running out of things in this world upon which we can agree. I mean, there are people out there who vehemently believe the earth is flat now. In this world in which suddenly we don't even know what shape the world itself is anymore, if every religion can agree upon something, I'm definitely going all in on that one thing. My personal perspective is that doing good deeds for others rewards, elevates, and nurtures the soul. Let's now take a more practical look at the value of doing good for others. While I did not consider such practical benefits for myself when I made the decision about 15 years ago to shift a great part of my time and resources to philanthropy, I've certainly learned firsthand about the upside of philanthropy for myself. I've received tremendous, tangible benefits from my own philanthropic engagement. Is philanthropy rooted in egoism? Egoism is not to be confused with egotism. Egotism is simply arrogance. Egoism is a theory that states that we as humans make decisions driven by what is in our own self-interest. There's a great deal of study of egoism in the fields of law, economics, and psychology. It's particularly studied in behavioral economics, the field that applies psychological insights into human behavior to explain economic decision-making. For our discussion, I'm going to focus on psychological egoism, the notion that egoism is an innate trait of human behavior. It helps to look at egoism side by side with its opposite, altruism, which is the principle of concern for the welfare of others. If you're altruistic, listener, you might do something that is for the benefit of others, even if it risks or sacrifices your own well-being. So clearly, philanthropy falls under the heading of purely altruistic behavior, right? I actually don't think so. I think philanthropy is driven by egoistic altruism. There are many things that we can do for the benefit of others that serve to benefit us as well. I don't think we as human beings would continue over a sustained period of time throughout our lives to do things for others if there wasn't some benefit in it for ourselves. This is the principle behind egoistic altruism. On an evolutionary level, if altruistic behavior were not in our own self-interest, the concept of altruism and the capacity for it within the human psyche would have been eliminated completely by evolution and natural selection. Think about that one for a minute. Where do we find examples of egoistic altruism in effect? Let's go all the way back to episode three of Datages and our friends the Maasai in Kenya. If you haven't listened to episode three to hear my observations of the Maasai people and their culture, I encourage you to go back and do so after you listen to this episode. I shared with you in episode three the intimate relationship between the Maasai and their cattle. There is really nothing they hold more precious, 
even placing their cattle above their own children in some cases. However, in the harsh conditions of the Serengeti, where entire herds can be wiped out by drought or famine, Maasai herders can frequently be seen sharing or donating their livestock to the other members of their tribe without expecting any reward whatsoever. They refer to this as osotua. This behavior can be considered egoistic altruism because the Maasai know that they may also need the other members of the tribe to help them in the future. Such altruism is an act of self-interest in the long term and serves to sustain the entire community. So how does all of this relate to philanthropy within our modern Western culture? After all, we aren't tribesmen looking out for one another's survival in the Serengeti. I still believe, though, that egoistic altruism can play a big role in surviving in professional life in particular, which can be its own harsh landscape. And in some ways, professional survival really does come back to forming a tribe. I often say that success in my professional life comes down to two things, relationships and performance. And more often than not, the former is more important than the latter. I've found consistently that some of the most meaningful and impactful relationships in my life have been forged through my engagement in philanthropy. Let's go all the way back to the very first dadage. Surround yourself with people who are better than you are. The best people with whom I've ever been surrounded are those I've met through philanthropy. You heard directly from one of them in episode 6B, Jeffrey Small. Jeffrey is one of the most solid human beings I know and has become one of my very best friends. And he and I would have never met had we not joined the Board of Trustees of St. John's Episcopal School in Orange County, California. And through my engagement with various groups at Stanford and the Board of Trustees of the California Science Center in Los Angeles, I've worked alongside colleagues who excel in all walks of life. Fortune 100 executives, venture capitalists, professional athletes, film and television producers, a former district attorney, individuals at the helm of major foundations, and rocket scientists. Literally, rocket scientists. I can also promise you from experience that such engagement has an increasing ROI. If you participate in philanthropy, you will associate with greatness. If you truly engage in philanthropy, you will find yourself in the same room with greatness. If you take a leadership role in philanthropy and really dive in headfirst, you will earn the respect of greatness. I have a couple of examples of this from my own philanthropic life. The first example involves Spire, Stanford Professionals in Real Estate. Now is as good a time as any for me to tell the whole Spire story. 2008 was my 10th Stanford reunion. And as it was for many alumni, that reunion served as my first real opportunity to re-engage with the university following my graduation. I was surprised, along with several of my classmates, to learn how many of us from our class seemed to gravitate toward commercial real estate as a career 10 years later. We all know how historically bad 2008 was in real estate. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, go watch The Big Short and come back in two hours. You owe it to yourself. That movie made in 2015 is equal parts tragic, hilarious, and educational. It's a rare find coming out of Hollywood. We'll put a link in the bulletin board. Anyway, 2008 in the real estate industry was about as close as it comes to Maasai herders trying to survive the perils of drought and famine on the Serengeti. Actually, now I'm curious. 
I wonder what happened to the average price of a hut made of mud and cow dung in the Maasai Mara during the global financial crisis. It must have tanked. It was, after all, a global crisis. So there my classmates in real estate and I sat in 2008, watching the world collapse around us and wondering, where do we turn for help? We're sitting here at Stanford, which has produced some of the greatest minds in the world and some of the top pioneers in business, surrounded by buildings bearing the names of titans of the real estate industry. How do we get in touch with those people? Hasn't anyone created an association for Stanford alumni in the real estate industry? After a few months, we all got sick of asking these questions and decided just to take matters into our own hands. We started Spire. People have asked me several times, was it not completely delusional to try to form a real estate association at Stanford during what was the worst real estate crisis in history? In reality, it was perfect timing. One, we were all looking for answers and hoping to find strength in numbers. And two, we didn't really have anything else to do. The real estate economy came to a screeching halt, and I, for one, had plenty of time to devote to building Spire because there was very little value that would come from investing that time and energy into my own business. I became a founding board member and the first president of Spire and would serve in those roles over the next several years. There was a point in time, early in the life cycle of Spire, when I had committed over $75,000 of my own capital to get the organization off the ground and was devoting as much as 70 hours per week to the organization. There was no way that I could have ever known how significant an investment I was making in my own career in the process. The people I've met over the past 15 years through Spire, the relationships I've forged, and the respect I've gained among a tremendous cross-section of the real estate industry are totally off the charts. I can trace nearly every single achievement in my career since 2008, in some way or another, back to my engagement with Spire. It has yielded JV partners, funding sources, industry information and insights, and unparalleled wisdom and experience. All of this was even more accelerated and elevated when Spire formed the SREC, the Stanford Alumni Real Estate Council. The SREC is a collection of approximately 100 senior real estate executives and leaders from the Stanford alumni community. It is equally accomplished and diverse. I've gotten so much out of being a part of that group, and I often tell people about the SREC, I really don't deserve a seat at that table. I only got one because I helped build the table. I put more into Spire than anyone along the way, but I'm supremely confident I've gotten more out of it along the way as well. And that continues today through my latest joint venture with White Star Real Estate and Brian Patterson, who is a fellow member of the SREC. Much more on that to come in future episodes. My second story is smaller in magnitude, but equally impactful to me by virtue of how surreal it was. I was invited to chair a task force for a digital humanities research center at Stanford called SESTA. It was only after I agreed to chair the task force that I learned that one of its members was Gerhard Casper. Gerhard Casper is not only a brilliant professor of the humanities, he was the president of Stanford University when I was an undergraduate student. So we get together on campus in the humanities department for the first task meeting. I get up in front of the small conference room, and one of the six people sitting at this table is Gerhard. I'm standing in front of a room conducting a meeting 
with President Casper, a commanding, white-haired, strong-jawed German intellectual and leader, listening to me as I had listened intently to him at that very first welcome speech in 1994 on the main quad at the university. As I said, surreal. I hope you can see my point now. Philanthropy exposes you to some of the greatest people you might encounter in your lifetime. It elevates your peer group in a way that you would never find elsewhere in your life. And the breadth and quality of relationships that can be forged through philanthropy aren't just tied to the quality of the people with whom you surround yourself. It's also tied to how you show up. What do I mean by that? I've found that when I engage in philanthropy, I am truly my best self. In business, I have to be calculated, cunning, and fiercely protective of my own interests. Not doing so is business suicide, particularly in commercial real estate. Trust me, I never recommend my job to the faint of heart. But in the philanthropic world, I get to set all of that aside. There's nothing for me to lose. After all, you can't lose what is given freely. I find that I can be singularly focused upon objectives and achievement for the greater good without having to second-guess motives and outcomes and how they could negatively impact my own interests. In such an environment, I'm also far more comfortable opening up about matters of a personal nature, sharing about my life and my family, because I don't need to guard myself against someone trying to take advantage of me in that situation. It is this better me that forges deeper and more meaningful relationships with colleagues, and in turn, I benefit far more from those relationships down the road. By being more altruistic, the result is a greater level of egoism. Seems like a crazy paradox, right? But isn't it wonderful at the same time? I want to make one more very important point here. I hope that this entire episode hasn't served as one giant spoiler for you, listener. What I mean is that I'm making all these observations about egoistic altruism, the vast benefits I've reaped from my investment in philanthropy, in hindsight. If you choose to invest your time, talent, and treasure in support of philanthropy in your own life, I hope that you can flush everything I've just shared here completely from your mind as you engage. I'm afraid that if you go into philanthropy with the mindset or the expectation that you will get something out of it in the end, you may destroy the critical and fragile balance that I've described, and you may ultimately undermine the process and deny yourself those very same rewards. I encourage you to embark on your journey into philanthropy with a clear mind, a giving heart, and no expectations whatsoever. Let me bring today's discussion to a close by sharing with you one more story. It really captures the perfect circle that is philanthropy and egoistic altruism. It's a story about lunch. About 10 years ago, when I was living in Los Angeles, I was invited by the Stanford University Office of Development to attend a lunch in Beverly Hills. And I've learned that no matter where I've gone or what I've done in life, never to underestimate the value of a free lunch. So I accepted with gratitude. This was after the founding of Spire, and I was starting to get more and more involved actively as an alum at the university. I was very excited to learn that the lunch was hosted by Peter and Helen Bing. If you've never heard of Peter and Helen, they are uber alums of Stanford. They have generously supported undergraduate education, programs such as overseas studies at Oxford, 
charitable matching funds to support donations from young alumni, and one of my favorite buildings on Stanford's campus, the Bing Concert Hall. If you've never visited or seen pictures of the Bing Concert Hall, please check out the link in the bulletin board at datages.com. The Bing is both aesthetically beautiful and acoustically marvelous. It's a great place to catch a musical performance. Back to lunch in Beverly Hills now. When I arrived at the luncheon, I was able to pull Peter Bing to one side away from the gathering guests so I could ask him a question. I said, Peter, I'll obviously never be able to have the impact that you have at Stanford in my lifetime, but if I aspire to have a meaningful long-term impact over the next 50 years of my life, what advice would you give me? He thought about it for a brief moment and said, Chad, let me think about that. I don't want to give you a quick answer. I want to give you a thoughtful one, but I promise to answer you before you leave here today. And he kept his promise. After what was a very lovely lunch that offered networking among alumni from Los Angeles and a talk from a Stanford professor who had just written a compelling book on military history, I caught Peter looking over at me from across the room with a gleam in his eye. As he wrapped up his farewell greetings with another guest, he made a beeline in my direction. He, he walked up and he said, with a note of excitement in his voice, I have your answer, and, and here it is. I have found in my life that every time Stanford has called upon me to do something, I've simply said yes. And no matter what that something was, large or small, I came away from that experience having gained more than I offered. So my advice to you is simply, raise your hand and let the university know that you're there to help, and every time they ask for your help, just say yes. And that advice from Peter became my guiding principle for engagement at Stanford and for engagement in philanthropy as a whole. And now, I'll leave you with a dad joke about a free lunch. What did the plate say to the fork? Lunch is on me. Remember, everyone, dad may not always know what he's talking about, but he sure can sound like he does. Thank you for listening to Dadages. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to visit dadages.com and subscribe to the Dadages podcast to get notified for future episodes. You can rate or review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Why? Because I'm your father and I said so. Just a little respect is all I ask for. I put a roof over your head and food on the table and what do you do? No, tell me exactly what do you do because I'm doing everything. I'm paying for everything. No, get back here. Get back here right now.